0: Uh, Welcome back to Sunday School. We are going to be covering the topic of God's providence over Satan and demons today. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1, and we'll probably be in a number of texts relatively quickly here. Mark chapter 1. Papa Fred, can you pray for us and then... uh, there's, there's uh, as with a lot of these topics, there's far more to, that we could cover than we'll have time to cover, but if you could pray for us, Papa Fred.
1: Thank you, Mark. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, uh, the topic today is, uh, is uh, one that uh, uh, is not popular, I think, sometimes, but uh, uh, necessary to, to cover because uh, the Bible is loaded with informations of, um, information about Satan and demons, and uh, we see his influence uh, from the beginning uh, in Genesis all the way uh, to Revelation. And, and so I pray that you, uh, your spirit uh, guide us and be with us as we exposit your word to properly do justice to this topic. Uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. So turn with us to Mark chapter 1. And we're just going to look at a couple of passages really quickly uh, before we get into some more in detail, just to show the uh, sovereignty of Jesus over unclean spirits, demons. Um, I know this is probably obvious, probably all of us are aware of this, but just just to give a basic uh, statement before we even look at this, uh, according to Scripture… Uh, When God created everything, it was all good. Genesis 1 ends with everything being very good. This includes everything. In both the spiritual world and in the physical world, everything was perfect at the end of Genesis chapter uh, chapter 1. And somewhere uh, between the, I guess, the end of Genesis 2 and the beginning of Genesis 3, somewhere in this short period of time, uh, one of the angels, uh, Satan, fell from his position. Uh, we're told that pride was found in him, or that the pride is the condemnation of the devil. So there was some kind of pride found in Satan. If you want to know how that happened, the answer is I don't know. But it did happen. And Satan fell, and he was cast out of heaven. And uh, Satan led with him a, a number of angels that fell with him. So 1 Timothy 5, I think it's verse 20, 21. 1 Timothy 5, 20, and 21 speaks of the elect angels which are those who did not fall because they were chosen by God. And then there are apparently the unelect angels, those who got allowed to go their own way. And there's a way of interpreting Revelation 12, and this is debatable, but it could mean that when a third of the stars fell with the dragon, it could mean that a third of the angels rebelled with Satan uh, in the original fall. And Satan led those angels who became demons. We're told that hell was originally created for the devil and his angels. So those fallen angels are demons. And Satan is obviously the leader and um, it needs, we need to remember Satan is, it, we don't believe in equal and opposite forces in the Bible between God and Satan. Uh, this is not some sort of dualism, dualism here. Right, where there's equal and opposite forces. Satan is a created being. Uh, he is under God's providence and sovereignty. Uh, he has a leash and God gives him exactly the amount of leash God wants to give him to basically allow Satan to undo himself by what he's allowed to do. And you can see here the providence that God has over Satan so clearly in Mark's gospel and in Jesus' ministry. We'll just start with a sampling here. Uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 22. Jesus comes to speak at the synagogue in Capernaum, and he's teaching, Mark one twenty-two, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. Now look at this line. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So when Jesus sovereignly tells demons what to do, they do what he says. (laughs) He he commands unclean spirits and they obey him. So when Jesus says, get out, the demon has no choice. The demon is going to be out of that person. Look at chapter three. Chapter three, verse 14, when Jesus is appointing the 12 apostles. Mark 3, 14, and Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Well, how could people like Peter, James, and John, <laughs> who if we know them, they were far from perfect, how could they have authority over demons? Jesus delegated that authority to them. He, he gave that authority to them, why? Because Jesus possesses absolute sovereignty over Satan and his demons. Look at chapter five of Mark's Gospel we could read this whole section, but we'll just shorten it. A demon-possessed man falls down. Look at verse 7 of Mark 5. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you. That that means I beg you, right? They're begging permission from Jesus. I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Just pause there. A Roman troop, a legion, would be like 6,000 Roman soldiers. So this, this demon says, we are a legion. We're, there's thousands of us in this man, which is an astonishing thing. Uh, middle of verse 9, or, sorry, beginning of verse 10. Now look at this. The, the demon-possessed man with, a, with thousands of demons, what does he do? He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. They're begging Jesus. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them, So he, Jesus, what? Gave Gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000, so there's at least one for every demon, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So the demons are begging Jesus for permission and Jesus gives them permission. As strange as this scene may be, Jesus clearly gives direct permission for them to do what they did, chapter six, very next chapter. Again, verse 7, and he, Jesus, called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Look at chapter 7. It's amazing how frequently this occurs, actually, in in Mark's gospel. Mark 7, look at verse 29. The Syrophoenician woman is begging for help for her, her child, her daughter, who's possessed by a demon. Uh, Mark 7:29. And Jesus said to her, "For this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter." And she went home and found the child, her daughter, lying in bed, and the demon gone. So Jesus cast out a demon from miles away from this child. Look at chapter nine. Mark chapter nine, skip down to verse 22. This is a boy with an unclean spirit. Mark 9:22, and the, the father says about this child who's possessed, Mark 9.22, demonized, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Just any opening reflections on seeing how decisive and sovereign Jesus is over demons and unclean spirits? First
1: of all, they recognize who he is right away. Yes. And uh, I'm not looking at a specific verse, but they often ask, is it our time? Have you come before our time or is our time? They know they have a time. They know they have a destiny. They know they're going to the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're asking him, are you come to take us to that lake? And, and, of course, not immediately, but he cast them out of the individual person, like the young boy here, the man. It's amazing. Mm. I like
2: what you're saying there, Papa. In verse 19 in chapter 2 of James, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, so they know Jesus in a way, in a different way, but in, in what more familiar than we are in a lot of ways because of the time that they were with him before they were cast out. So I just find the whole providence series so far to me, so encouraging because so applicable to our everyday life. You know, this just gives us such a a confidence to know Satan doesn't have free reign over our life. And if he certainly does tamper with our thinking, I imagine, and I don't really know what all he does and what's all from the world or from my own evil, you know, uh, desires and flesh. But in the end, he doesn't win and God uses it for good. It must be really frustrating. You know, like Joseph saying to his brothers, well, you men for evil, God men for good. I ain't in the same way for, for Satan. He means things for evil. And for believers, God always works it together for
0: good because God is sovereign and in control. So encouraging. Turn with me to Luke's gospel and look at the very, toward the end, Luke 22. There's two texts in this one chapter that I think are relevant, Luke 22. Now, this first one, you have to really pay attention for a moment to get what's going on because you have to connect two different things together. This is about Judas Iscariot, and we all know what's gonna happen, but listen to the wording here. Luke 22, starting in verse three. Let's pay careful attention to the wording. Luke 22, verse three. Then, listen, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot who was of the number of the 12. And okay, now when Satan enters Judas, what does Satan lead Judas to do? Well, we know, but let's see it. Verse four, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, notice there, it says Judas consented. Judas' will was not being violated by Satan. His flesh and his, his, his carnal desires were simply being amplified by Satan, okay? He was not acting, he, he consented. He, he made a real decision to betray Jesus for money, but Satan was influencing him. But look down, skip down to verse 22, because this is, this is amazing. Let's start in verse 21. At the Last Supper, but behold, Jesus is talking about Judas here, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined by God. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, do you, do you see the two pieces together here? The chapter begins, Satan entered into Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus then at the Last Supper says, one of you, Judas, is about to betray me. And he says, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna be betrayed as it has been determined by God. Now, do you see here, is God sovereign over what Satan is doing? God has predetermined the betrayal. In fact, it's predicted in the Old Testament. In the Psalms, it says, David writes, as a messianic foreshadowing of Jesus, he says, my close friend, he who broke bread with me, has lifted up his heel against me. That's a prediction of someone betraying the messianic figure, and Jesus quotes that verse at one point and says, this is Judas. And so, Judas' betrayal was influenced by Satan, It was also uh, pre-ordained by God before the foundation of the world. It was pre-scripted by God in the Psalms. And then here it says it happened according to God's determination. So is God sovereign over the worst thing Satan ever did, betraying Jesus? Yes, and does Satan intend evil against Jesus? Yes, does God intend good for all of us through the salvation that's gonna be worked out? So God gives Satan exactly enough leash to do the worst thing he can possibly do. And it's just enough rope for Satan basically to commit suicide. Because his, his plan, which is to destroy Jesus, does the exact opposite. It ends up creating salvation for all of God's people. So Satan, that's what you say, frustrated. He mm. does the ultimate thing. He has Jesus in the palm of his hand, it seems like, and he crushes Jesus on the cross. And then Jesus comes back and says, you've fulfilled scripture. This is exactly what God has preplanned. And now I can actually save my people from their sins. So Satan gets just enough leash to destroy himself. And that's what you see over and over and over in Scripture. One more text in this chapter. Look at verse 31. This one's amazing to me uh, as well. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. So Simon and Peter, same person, right? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. And if you'll look there, the Greek word for you is plural right there. He's demanded to have all of you, disciples, that he might sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, do you see that? Satan says, I want to be able to take the disciples and and shake them. I I want to pass them through a sift and I want to separate them from their faith. I want them to turn away from the faith. And he's actually demanded, Satan demanded to have Peter, to make Peter deny Jesus and then fall away. And Jesus says, "Um, I'm not gonna allow that. I'm gonna let him deny me, but I've got a plan for that. After he denies me, I'm not going to allow him to fall away. I'm going to bring him back. I've prayed for Peter specifically that his faith would not fail. And once he's turned again, he will strengthen his brothers in the Lord. And that's what you see at Pentecost, right? He stands up and preaches. So Peter, I mean, Satan wants Peter, but Jesus says, I'm not letting you have Peter. I am actually going to pray specifically for him that you not allow him to to rob him of
1: his faith. So uh, other insights from this text? he, He, once again, he's using evil, Satan is using. purposes, but to cause Peter to deny Jesus, but he turns it around for good. He strengthens it. He sifts him. He forgives him. Peter repents, and he comes back, and he restores him, and he leads his brothers.
2: And like both of you are saying, Colossians 2, you don't need to turn here. Let me just read. By uh, canceling um, 2.14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands, that's what Jesus did. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and Hmm. authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so uh, the triumph is over. Um, Satan's no longer going to win, never was going to win, and uh, Jesus um, conquered him on the cross, canceling the... I think we see this
1: more uh, in in the New Testament because of the cross. But, you know, I, I was blown away back when we were, ages ago now, when we were doing Daniel, uh, God removes kings and sets up kings. I mean, like they're pawns in his hand. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, Daniel 417. Daniel was had the prerogative of looking forward to the end of the earth, to, to consummation, and could see that, that he was concerned about all these Babylonian and Persian and Greek and Roman emperors that were coming and going, and, but God was sovereign over all of them. So even back, but see, in the New Testament, we get much more insight, just like this uh, uh, view uh, view of, of, uh, of Satan and Peter and Satan and Judas, and you know how that works and the the details of it. Yeah, the details. The, they, uh, God, uh, Satan meant it for evil and God meant it for good and turned it for
0: good. So. Let's turn to one more text real quick here in the new, to the last book of the New Testament to Revelation and uh, just this goes with what Jerry just read from Colossians I think. Revelation 12, we talked about this text uh, I don't know, a number of months ago. I know there's debate about everything in Revelation so I won't get into the debatable part really but uh, I'll just mention this. If you look here at uh, Revelation 12, 7 now I know there's, there's three views on what this text is exactly referring to. I'm just going to go with the view I prefer, I th- the one I think is most likely, which is I think this is referring to a battle that took place at the moment of Jesus' death. I know people have other views, and it's not a huge deal if you take a different view. but uh, I think this happened at the moment of Jesus' death, when the lamb was slain. but let's look at what happens. Re- Revelation 12:7. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. That's what you said, Fred, they know. They they know that the time is limited. Eventually they are going to be judged. But what I love here is Satan is the accuser. That's what, he, that's what his name means, the accuser. And he loves to accuse us to one another to make there be division between believers, right? He accuses us to each other to make us dislike each other, to have discord in the, among the church. Uh, he also accuses us to God. He says, these people are not worth it. They're sinners. Get rid of them. Don't 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 stay with them. And he also accuses God to us. He tells us God is not trustworthy. He's not better. He's not more satisfying than the world. Trust in the world. Live for the world. Hope in the world. Don't believe in God. So he accuses God's character before us, our character before God, and our character before one another. That's what he does. He's the accuser. And his job was shut down right here how? The blood of the lamb because now all accusations against God's people fall short why because the lamb has taken away our sin like you said he's triumphed over the principalities and powers disarming them by taking away our sin and now when satan says you know when, when the when the tempter when, when satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward i look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me Satan has nowhere to go with his accusation. His name is now meaningless. He can't accuse successfully anyone who's in Christ because the blood of the lamb and the, te- the word of their testimony, that the- they've defeated him because of what Christ has done. So Satan is a defeated foe. Uh, he is mortally wounded in the sense that the cross has done him in, but he is still alive and he is still wreaking havoc as much as he wants and is able, but God has put limits around that. And one day he knows he will be judged finally and his time is short. So let- let's turn to Job. Chapter 1. Papa Fred, comments on what we've discussed so far? Well, I just,
1: I got to go to Martin Luther. (laughs) Mighty Fortress is our God. He says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. One little word, and and the disciples and Jesus had demonstrated that. Be gone, Satan, and he was Mm -hmm.
0: gone. Jerry, from the opening of Job here, what are some things that we could uh, begin to learn about Satan and what he does? Oh, yeah, you have to love uh, this
2: interaction. Let me ask you from the part we just read in Revelation, because oftentimes the students ask, would we say now, because Job could come before God then, Satan could come. Satan could, yeah, sorry. But now that's not possible since Jesus, do you believe? Is that, or oh. is that a controversial question? Yeah. Sorry to throw that no, out
0: No, no, that's, that's a good question. I'm, I, I'm scared to answer that wrongly right now, so I'm not sure, Papa yeah,
1: Fred. Yeah, that's one that get you in trouble. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how long that leash is, but I don't, I don't <laughs> think it extends all the way to the throne room yeah. of God anymore. I think he's been literally cast away, cast away. to some degree, and yeah. his, his power is limited, so.
2: Well, it is a great. What he said. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, I like that. There's a fantastic account, though, to see. I think the clear, in my mind, the, the best and the clearest account to see that uh, the leash is definitely um, only as far as God will let him go. And, uh, and he lengthened it, uh, but, but still in control. And Satan comes to ask. That's what I noticed this week. You know, it wasn't that Satan. He knew, I can't just go get Job unless God gives me
1: permission. That's an amazing insight to how uh, the throne room of heaven was working at that time anyway, that Satan had access. In fact, he calls him, he says the sons of, uh, where does it say, the sons of men, that was the angelic host. Yeah, verse 6. Verse 6, yes. Uh,
2: Came to present themselves. When the sons of God, excuse
1: me, came to present themselves. That's the angelic Mm host. Well, there there wasn't anybody else, Uh, so there there had to be the angels. Can you read for us, Papa, verses 6 through 12? Yes, sir. The word of the Lord. Uh, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to him, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, and does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has done, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord.
0: So in this passage, it's pretty remarkable what you see here. I know this is a familiar text to many of us. Yes, Satan does ask permission, and you may even have a Bible that will tell you, you know, with, with his name there, the first time it appears in verse six, there might be a footnote that says in the Hebrew, Satan means the accuser or the adversary. And that's true throughout those first two chapters of Job. So he's already here. Do, do you hear what he's doing to Job? Him being the accuser? He's saying, God, his character is not good, right? He's accusing Job's character before God. This is what Satan does. So he's, Job, yes, of course, he offers animal sacrifice to you. Of course, he speaks, you know, of praising of you and he blesses you. And and of course, he wants his children to follow after you. Why wouldn't he? You've given nothing but pleasant circumstances to Job. Every time he gets up, he's the most prosperous, rich man around. He's got all these animals. He's got this huge family, 10 wonderful children, I think seven sons and three daughters. He's been blessed more than you can imagine. Of course, Job worships you, God. Who wouldn't worship a God who provides you with all that you want, just in your own flesh, in your own natural self. And then uh, Satan says, if you take away the comfort, the convenience, and the external blessings of his life. He will show his true colors, his real character will come out, and Satan's real character will be one of cursing you, not of blessing you, he's using you for your stuff, God. He does not love you, he's not about you, he's using you to get to the things that you can give him. sort of the uh, the Santa Claus approach to God, right? Just, you just, you want to spend time with the guy in the red suit so you can get some stuff from him, right? And if you've been a good little boy or girl, you can earn some gifts from this from this, from this this omnipresent, un- all-knowing being. God is not like that. That's, that's not the way this works. And so God gives Satan leash. And my goodness, does he give him leash. Mm-hmm. And people just, it's stunning. We, we, we're so familiar with the story that I don't think the heart-rending aspect of this gets to us let's just I'll, I'll skim through some of this but look at verse 13 now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and there came a messenger to job and said the oxen were plowing let me skip ahead here he finds out that his, that his animals have been destroyed all the different animals look down at verse 18 while he was yet speaking there came another and said your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and behold a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong." Now, that, that's an amazing statement. Job is not ignoring the grief. I mean, goodness, you can read chapter three. It's about, as, it's about as depressing a lament. He curses the day of his birth. I mean, he is lamenting, he is pouring out his grief before the Lord in chapter three. He's not ignoring the grief, but he is also not cursing God. And there is, a, there is an amazing balance in the Christian life between enduring incredible hardship with real tears and just burning tears in a moment of intense grief and hardship, where you're pouring out your, your lamentation before the Lord and holding fast to the fact that you bless God, that you know that God is good no matter what is happening, that he gives and he takes, and it's his sovereign will, and we trust him with that. that it's an amazing mingling of those two realities, grief and trust. Like Job later says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's an amazing thing. I, God seems like he's just after me. He's just slaying me. He's allowing horrible things to happen one after another, soon bodily illness for months. But he says, although God slays me, I will remain trusting in him. I will
1: hope in him. And yeah, Paul And the bodily illness too, That that's the next chapter. But he said, then his wife said, this is after he's afflicted with boils from Satan. Now, Satan uh, uh, warned, uh, I mean, God warned Satan, okay, you can you can afflict him, but don't Kill him. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die, she says. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we not receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. That's an amazing statement. So I think what this shows us
0: is one of the ways we can silence the, the devil is by delighting in God, trusting God, and worshiping God, no matter what is happening around us. Knowing that he is good and he's in control, even when it does not make sense, in those moments, Satan's accusations just die right in his mouth, because his accusation is, of course the Christians love you. They go to church, they serve you, because you're blessing them with all these external blessings. But if you take those blessings away, you'll find out they were using you. They were not loving you, God. But when Job sits in the ash pile, and he's torn his clothes and shaved his head in grief, and he's pouring out his lament before the Lord. He says, Lord, I don't understand this, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not pursuing another God. I'm not gonna curse you and go after another people's God or another thing in this world. I'm gonna sit right here on the ash heap until you can come down and talk to me. And and, and Job, at times, struggles, I think, with his own arrogance throughout the book. He he has issues that he has to work through. But at the end, God does come down, and God basically says, I'm I'm the one who made the the stars. Uh, Can you... (laughs) when God comes down, some of those questions just make me smile. Mm-hmm. God says, look up there. You see the constellation known as the Pleiades? I mean, first, I'd have to get the, uh, the, the star app, you know, on the phone to even find the <laughs> Pleiades. You got to find where it is, but you go, okay, you find the Pleiades. God says, um, excuse me, Job, can you, uh, can you bind the cords of the, of the Pleiades? Can you hold Pleiades in the palm of your hand? I don't know what Job said, but I imagine him saying, I don't think I'm able to do that right now, Lord. The Lord said, I I can. And God just goes through all of creation and says, were you there when the foundations of the earth were made? Tell me if you have knowledge. If you're so old and so wise, tell me how the ocean works and how this works. Now, how this particular animal gives birth and tell me about the life cycle of this animal. And What about this and that and the other? And by the end, Job is humbled to the dirt because he knows God. You are the one who holds all things in your hand. You are good. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And let's turn, can we turn to, the, uh, to that section at the end of Job? I know we've been here before even in this series. Look at Job 42.
1: Papa, can you read the first six verses? And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will answer you and you will make it known. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes.
0: Jerry, you talked about this a while back, but can you, yeah, can you yeah. share a few thoughts Don't about
1: that? His- I you
2: love verse two? I know that you can do all things. And so it goes back to God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, I think Job's affirming God's sovereignty um, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What a great word, thwarted. No purpose. Of God's can be thwarted, and so I think that's what I find a great joy in is knowing that God is in heaven, and He does what He pleases. It always pleases God to do what's good for His people, which is to conform us to the image of Christ, and no one's going to thwart that the unbelievers, Satan, throw out whoever you want to out there uh but but job again, this last and I know we've talked about it, these last five chapters. I think our go-to chapters for us to read often when we're kind of wondering, well, I wonder what's, why things are going on here. And it just gives us a really good idea to say, um, like Job said, I better not get too arrogant here. And I don't have to ask all these questions. All I really need to know is there in verse two, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then we kind of can just move along with life, Uh, right? I know that's overly simplistic in the uh, trials that we run into, but I I think it's just a
0: base that we have to run to often. And if you look at verse 10, Job 42, verse 10, Job has just prayed for his foolish friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and Elihu, (laughs) the younger man. And it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And this is from the inspired narrative here, narrator. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil, or the the, the word could mean disaster, for all the evil or disaster that the Lord had brought upon him. Now that verse is crucial for the whole book of Job. Let me reread that sentence. It's
1: crucial for all suffering.
0: Yeah, it's crucial Mm -hmm. for all human suffering. Because this applies to all human suffering. Look at it one more time. They comforted him for all the evil or disaster that the Lord had brought upon him. Uh, Do you see the significance of that verse from the inspired narrator? I thought Satan's the one that brought the trouble on him. Satan brought the wind, right, that knocked the house over, that killed all 10 kids. Satan's the one that plagued Job with boils. Right, He had all this awful stuff all over, oozing out of his skin, picking himself with broken pottery. Don't think too long about that. It's pretty revolting. Job was sitting there for months absolutely in horrific pain, and we're told that Satan did that. Satan afflicted him. Satan sent the, I mean, it's implied he sent the wind and knocked the house over. So this verse from the inspired narrator says, all the disaster, all the evil, all the trials that came upon Job in the whole story, the Lord brought against him. The, the Lord brought upon him. That only makes sense if God is sovereign over Satan, right? If God is the one above Satan and God is ordaining Satan's steps and giving him exactly the right leash to eventually overturn his own works, then it it is absolutely right to say Satan was the secondary cause. God was the primary cause. God was the ultimate cause behind Satan. And it was God, just like with Judas, God had a plan behind Satan's evil schemes and God was working them for great good. Now, let me ask you, do you think Satan uh, likes the fact that what is this, 4,000 years after these events? Literally, we're like, we're 4,000 years. This is like around Abraham's time. This is 2000 BC-ish. This is 4,000 years later. You think Satan loves the fact that uh, the story, he tried to use all this evil to, to you know, make God look bad. You think Satan's thrilled by the fact that hundreds of millions of people for 4,000 years have heard and read and studied the story and been deeply encouraged in the midst of our own suffering to cling to a good God, even when we can't make sense out of what's happening? Has God taken Satan's evil? and overturned it for great good in the story of Job. This is what God does. I think Luther said, the devil is God's devil. <laughs> he, he only does God's sovereign bidding. Satan thinks he's doing all this wonderful stuff in his mind to overturn God's plan, and he ends up finding out every time at the end, oh no, God meant it for good. Oh, I mean, that's, how frustrating to be Satan. <laughs> every time you try to do something, and God even grants you permission, you're like, this is great. I mean, let's go back to the Gospel of Mark. Some of his demons have possessed a little boy and they're, they're tormenting him. And Satan's thinking, I'm, I'm really, this is great. I, I'm getting to hurt people and I get to do whatever I want. Jesus rebukes the demon, sends them out, and hundreds of millions of people get to read the story and see the power of Jesus over a legion of demons. Does that glorify Jesus at the end? Yes. Yeah, so the worst Satan can do ends up getting worked backwards by God for the best of what God planned. And I think that's the, that's the purpose
1: of God in, in using Satan the way that he does. Thoughts on that, Papa? Just, just a quick uh, uh, end of this section here. I want to go back to uh, Job 2, yeah. uh, 13. I'm not going to read the Job's three friends story because I'd have to pronounce their names. But, uh, and they raised their voices, they wept, they tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. As someone who's experienced a lot of pain and suffering in my life, this is one of the best things as a Christian that you can do is to sit with someone, pray with someone and not talk. Once <laughs> once Job's three friends opened their mouth, they got in trouble. So uh, sit with someone, pray with someone, Encourage someone just by your presence. So that's great, Papa. And one
2: more quick thing with Job and Papa. I know you have those kind of ten things that Piper went through that are are interesting as well. But um, in the end, God did give Job back ten more children and what you know so much more than what he had even at the beginning. That's not always going to be the way God mm-hmm. chooses. That's right. You know, in that end, it was a little bit of a, a, a almost a happy ending. I think. But um, if ours is or it isn't, that doesn't mean that God's not equally in control. And so it doesn't mean that Satan wins if God doesn't, um, you know. Circumstantially. Yeah, circumstantially gives us what, what we are. That's, and, and that's even better news, you know. Whether we get um, the trouble that comes or whether we get the good, we can attribute it to God and know that he's perfect in control and it's going to work together for good to conform us to the
0: image of Christ. Now, I find it interesting when James summarizes the story of Job. So in the New Testament letter of James, James in one verse summarizes the story of Job, kind of. And it's interesting, he doesn't mention Satan in this verse. L- listen to this little one-sentence summary, Job, uh, excuse me, James 5.11. This is how he says it. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, under trial. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of not of Satan, the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Mm. So when James wants to summarize the story of Job, he says, here are the two remarkable things. Job remains steadfast through all of it, trusting the Lord against what Satan said he would do. And number two, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So that's James' uh, summary of that. And let me take you to another text here real quick. Uh, Second Corinthians in, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 12, it's got to be one of our more quoted texts in our church's history, but I want to look at this because this is so relevant to this topic. 2 Corinthians 12. You probably remember this. Paul begins the chapter, he's, he's being humble, so he speaks of himself in the third person. Do you remember this, when he talks about going to the third heaven and seeing things that cannot be written down, that cannot be uttered? And he's referring to himself, it becomes very clear, he's humbly referring to himself in the third person. Let's, I'll read it here, Second Corinthians 12, 1. Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to vision, visions and revelations of the Lord. Now here's his humble way of talking about himself. Verse two, I know a man in Christ, that's himself, Now look at verse seven, it becomes clear. Paul's talking about himself having seen heaven. Verse seven, so to keep me from becoming conceited, proud, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, the demon should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now just, do you see it there? It's so amazing. Satan apparently sent a demon to harass Paul. So I don't know what this looked like exactly. It could have been failures in some of the churches. It could have been Paul's personal sin. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It could have been a hundred different things. It could have been a physical ailment of Paul. I, I tend to think it might've been some problem in the churches. I, I don't know what it was for sure. No one really knows for sure. This, this messenger from Satan is sent to harass Paul. So does Satan intend evil against Paul? Yes, he sent a demon to harass him. Satan meant it for evil. And God, did God let a demon harass Paul? Did God allow that to happen? Yes, could God have stopped it? Yes, God chose to let a demon torment or harass or be a thorn in the side of Paul for an extended period of time. Why would God let Satan do that? He's just letting a demon harass the apostle Paul. Why would he do that? Verse seven, one more time. So to keep me from becoming proud, conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Satan meant it for evil, but God had a purpose for the demon. God's purpose for letting the demon harass Paul was to humble Paul and to keep him from becoming proud, from having seen heaven and paradise with his own eyes. So God is again overturning a messenger of Satan who means it for evil and is actually working Paul's sanctification through it. So let me make an application point. I don't don't know exactly in our lives what is to be attributed to Satan directly. And what's to be attributed to my own flesh? What's to be attributed to the fallenness of the world itself? I know they're all intermingled, right? They all work together, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I don't know exactly which thoughts come from Satan, the fiery darts of the the evil one to tempt us to sin, but he certainly does shoot darts of temptation into our mind. Ephesians 5 says we need to resist him with the shield of faith against those. I don't know exactly what Satan's doing in your life or in my life. Demons, though, are doing things in our lives. They're real, and they really are trying to tempt us, harass us, hurt us, whatever they're trying to do. Here's what I know for sure. Every time a demon tries to tempt you, we probably haven't encountered Satan personally. He's got, he can only be at one place at a time. He's probably dealing with the big people in the world. Satan probably hasn't spent a lot of time with me or you, okay? But he's got demons. He's got hundreds of millions of demons and they're they're all over the place. And so the demons know about us. I guarantee you that. And there are demons who are at work in our lives. I, I know that that is true. And here's what I can say even in the moments when the demons are coming upon us and trying to do whatever they're doing to us, tempt us, harass us, at the end of the day, does God even have a purpose for our sanctification and our growth in godliness for that?
1: Yeah, yes. Listen right here, <clears throat> verse 10, 12, 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. That's the achieved results of this humility,
0: the humbling. That's a great point. The the, the list there include weaknesses and all those different things. So if Satan is involved in all those things, we know that even then, God is going to be showing his sufficient grace. And he he gets the glory. And he gets the glory in the middle of all that. Mm
2: -hmm. Knowing that God's grace is sufficient, just one more thing. What a great promise to, to close on because I think it's safe to say rather to go through the trial and experience God's grace than not have the trial at all. And uh, God's grace is the great part about life, not a lack of trials. And so I think that we have to go back to that when we think about any trials that we have. But the trials that are caused by Satan, I don't think Paul would have traded that at the end of the day. If I'm reading them right, he rejoices in those. He knew they were from Satan, but he still in the end says, God's grace is sufficient. It was really good for me to go through that. I learned things. I, I was humbled. I I grew, and, uh, and that's the bottom line, and, and so uh, very frustrating for Satan, but very comforting for us to know that God's uh, in control there.
0: Can you pray for us, Jerry? Yeah,
2: I'd love to. Father, we are very grateful to be, that, to be able to come before your throne and just thank you that your grace is sufficient, your power is made perfect in weakness, and Lord, I would thank all of us in here today uh, would confess that we are very weak. Um, our weaknesses are apparent. Um, we confess them, uh, we struggle, we struggle in so many ways, uh, we struggle spiritually in so many ways, uh, but yet, yeah, Lord, you are our rock, and you are our redeemer, and you have triumphed over uh, Satan and uh, all the demons um, by sending the Lord Jesus to the cross to, um, to save us, to rescue us from, um, from sin, uh, Lord, we are just overwhelmed with that kind of grace, and we are thankful uh, that we know as this week uh, we will be tempted um, in many ways, and Satan will roam around like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour, that you will hold us in your loving right hand, and you will only allow uh, Satan to do what you will um, use for, um, for our good and your glory. Lord, we pray that this would become applicable in our life, um, and that this week we would live with a greater trust in you uh, than we've ever had before, uh, knowing your sovereignty and your grace in our life, in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Next couple weeks, Lord willing, we will cover the topic of God's, this one's tricky, God's sovereignty over sin itself. So that's similar to this topic, but we're gonna look at God's sovereignty over sin.